think about how delicately you hold your baby, you dress your baby, and you feed your baby. We do that because they're adorable, of course, but also because their skin is delicate. Know this. There is only one diaper brand that we recommend to give you the gentle protective care your little one needs. And that's Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Their Swaddler's diaper absorbs wetness better versus the leading value brand and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection to keep your baby's skin dry, healthy, and beautiful. And when you use Swaddler's in tandem with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, you'll keep your baby's skin healthy. The wipes are made from 100% plant-based cloth, and you won't have to worry about tearing. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. That's right. So download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. I hit rock bottom. It felt like a brand new start. Hi, everybody. It's Glennon. I cannot believe that you came back. We can do hard things every single week. It just blows my mind. Thank you for spending this hour with us. I am feeling sappy this morning, half sad, half happy. I'm happy because this week my sister and her babies and her husband came to Naples to see us. I haven't seen them for a year and I got to squeeze all of them. We missed uh, Christmas together as so many did because of COVID. And so I decided we were going to do Christmas, damn it. So much to Abby's chagrin. Um, We put up the tree. We decorated the whole house. Yes, we did. We decorated cookies. We sang Christmas carols. We had Christmas morning. We had Christmas. And it was wonderful and beautiful and they left last night. So I miss my sister already, but I'm very excited that she will be joining us in a minute um, to discuss something that so many people have asked us to discuss on We Can Do Hard Things, and that is addiction and sobriety. How um, do we decide? How do we figure out if alcohol is a problem for us? How do we love addicts in our lives? How do we protect ourselves? How do we show up for them? How do we talk about sobriety and addiction And what are all the different ways that alcohol can mm, give us or keep us from a beautiful life? Let's get started. Today, what we are going to talk about is sobriety and addiction. And I think this will just be the first of many conversations we have about this topic because this has been addiction and sobriety have been the hard thing of my life and because it's been the hard thing of my life it's also been the hard thing of your life one of the hard things of your life because you are my person and you have been through all of it with me and i have told my story my addiction story, my alcoholism story, my food addiction story, and my recovery story so many times. And I think what has been missing from all of that is your perspective. You know, so many people say to me, I'm not you, 
I'm not the addict. I'm the one that loved the addict mm-hmm. or the one that loves the addict now. And that is a perspective that we don't hear enough, right? Yeah. So the hard thing we're discussing today is sobriety. Um, and it's also being someone who loves an addict, right? Yep. So uh, the story I've told so many times, but some people don't know, is that I became a food addict when I was 10, bulimic, and then that morphed into many other addictions. And I became an alcoholic in my late teens and didn't get sober until I was 25. And the day I got sober, I um, I had I found out that I was pregnant. And so I just found myself one morning just sitting on a bathroom floor holding a positive pregnancy test and just shaking from terror, but also from withdrawal and hangover. And um, something about that day, I think I, I was so sick and so broken and I had burned every bridge in my life. And I just think I really understood that moment as maybe a last chance kind of to come back to life. Mm-hmm. And so I actually called you from the bathroom floor and my memory is that pretty soon after that, you came to me and picked me up and took me to my first recovery meeting. So right. that would have been the rock bottom in the beginning, but let's go backwards a little bit. Okay. Um, I just want to hear from you. I mean, it's, it's wild because of all of the conversations we have, we really haven't even in private. <laughs> no, we've com- never talked about this. <laughs> I know. I'm kind of actually scared. I really am. I was thinking about it this morning. Like I'm scared to know, but what was it like? My addictions affected your life from a very, very early age because I think mom and dad found out about my bulimia when I was around 12, which means that you were only nine no, it was fa- earlier than that. Was it? Yeah, didn't they? It was when it, the the first time that they saw, the first time we were at grandma's when they mm-hmm. discovered that you were throwing up. And that night they talked to me about it. So, because they were like, "Do you, what do you know? Has this been happening? Um, was that even when you were that, 12? Even that, that's so interesting, right? So the first experience from the person who, the sister is, what did you know? What do you know? What what was it like? And I'm sure that's a really loaded question you could answer a million different ways. But what do you remember about being raised in our family where one sister was sick and you were living with that? I mean, I don't really, I, I obviously remember that night and um, and I didn't know that it was happening before um, they knew it was happening. Um, I think that I remember, obviously was worried, confused. You know, I would have been seven or eight or nine. Mm-hmm. I can't remember which, what the date they found out. Um, and and then kind of I I lose track until the next kind of pivotal moment when you were a senior in high school and you went to the mental hospital. Mm-hmm. That That I remember being a real moment of... Um, fear and worry and just kind of, I would have been a freshman in high school and just was very, very worried and scared for you, but was proud of you for going, for going there. 
Um, do you remember dropping me off? Because yes. I actually, I only have flashes, but I do remember yeah. very well you guys dropping me off. What do you remember I, from that day? I remember we all, we got in dad's pickup truck. We drove to, I remember the name of the hospital. We mm-hmm. drove there. It's surreal when you think about it. We just deposited you at this hospital. I remember that got you to your little room, set up your stuff. And then Do you remember what you gave me? The the letter and the Mariah Carey song? Yeah, yeah. you gave me a letter which had a bunch of beautiful things about how I was strong and that you loved me so much. And then inside was the letter was this little smaller note and I unfolded it and it was the lyrics to the hero song by Mariah Carey. And by the way, it is really moving those lyrics. <laughs> What were they? Oh my a, gosh. But it's the heroes inside of you. Like uh, you have everything you need. It's all inside of you. Yeah. Um, it's the message I've needed my whole life and I still do as a 45 year old. So you nailed it. Well, Mariah Carey nailed it. I mean, yeah, she's really, true. she's really the hero we all need if we're being honest. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. So I, that was a pivotal moment. And then it kind of, uh, several months later you went to college and that's when I feel like I understood things as I began to understand you as two people in, instead of one. So all mm. through going, I mean, we were we were completely we were so tight. I don't I don't remember playing a lot. I don't remember having really doing much with anybody who wasn't you throughout yeah, it was growing just the up. the two of us. Yeah, yeah. it was just yeah. the two of us for all the things. And then... We even had one blankie. Do you remember? We had yes. one blankie, <laughs> a, one security blanket, and we would share it. I slept in the bottom bunk and you slept in the top bunk. So we would share the blankie mm-hmm. like across the bunks. And then one day we were in a hotel room. I don't know why maybe in Ohio. And we were fighting, we were in two different beds and we were fighting over the blanket. So mom walked in and cut the blanket down the middle Mm -hmm. and gave you half and me half. And I remember you being fine with that and me being like, you thinking like, yes, awesome. Why didn't we think of this earlier? And I remember feeling devastated by it. Mm. And I don't remember the thoughts. I just remember the feeling. And it makes me think like that is, was a connection to you that I needed. It wasn't the security of the blanket. It was the security of being connected to my sister by the blanket. Yeah. A shared security blanket is <laughs> um, maybe textbook uh, codependence the me- the in metaphor training. I mean, for codependency, a shared security blanket. I mean, it also goes back to our core issues of like scarcity and money. Like why the hell didn't we have two security blankets to be in? God. God. You get a blankie, kids. Enjoy right. your blankie. And by the way, I took that blankie with me to, yeah, college. to college. I had yep. it to college. And my dad, when I graduated, cut a teeny piece of the blankie off and put it in a frame. And it says, in case of emergency, break glass. I know. That was sweet. So sweet, right? It was so sweet. So but two y- people. I was two people in yeah. college. That's- I think I just kind of intuitively understood that there was this one sister that I have always had that was still there and this kind of wisdom and love and I could always would always do anything for me. And then I just understood there was this different version and there was, Oh, I could always tell 
it's funny within like 20 seconds of a conversation or a phone call or whatever, I could tell if you'd been drinking. It was just, it's just like when you know someone that well, and it's just like a tiny, it's like a click. You just know that person differently. And as college moved on for you, I think, it was just clear that you were not in possession of yourself. Like there were mm-hmm. some moments where you were in possession of yourself and there were, and then those were wonderful. But I just understood that you couldn't, you could not, not lie. Mm-hmm. You were, I, it, you, I, you couldn't tell the truth. You couldn't, and I didn't expect otherwise. I don't remember being super upset about it. I remember kind of just understanding it as fact. Mm-hmm. Like, I think I think I realized it. It was at one point in college where I'd called wherever you were supposed to be living at the time where you had told mom and dad and me that you were living. And it was just this familiar, one of the girls answered. And I was like, it's good in there. It was before cell phones or anything, so you couldn't get in touch. And I was like, oh, there was kind of, yeah, let me see. And they kind of all rushed around. And I was like, oh, Glennon doesn't live there. No. Like mm-hmm. she definitely doesn't live there. And I think that was the that was the the moment for me where I realized, okay, she she can't. She's just living a whole nother um life. And she is, she's not. Um, in possession of herself mm-hmm. for the remainder. Did mom and dad used to talk to you about, you know, they there kept being like little mini interventions. Like I have flashes of those. Flashes mm-hmm. of, you know, sitting on the couch across from mom and dad and then something awful had just happened. That every My whole life was just something awful happening after another awful thing happening mm-hmm. after another awful thing happening, all tied to drinking. And- I, you know, I remember mom and dad looking at me and saying, do you even love us? I'll never forget that. And just feeling like, oh my God, like I, I have no answer for you because every single one of my actions proves that I don't, Mm -hmm. except that I do. (laughs) Like that's like, I'm swallowed up. I remember feeling like I've been swallowed. I'm like, swallowed by this whale that is addiction and no one can hear me and no one can see me, but I'm in here. But it was like one of those movies where the person's alive and they're in a hospital bed and they can understand everything, Mm -hmm. but they can't speak or communicate. You know, did you know that those little interventions were going on or did they, did the mom and dad shield you from that stuff? Or how did you all communicate with each other about my situation? I mean, we, I definitely knew that they knew that that there were that you were struggling that there was um that we all viewed you as having a major drinking problem but they didn't tell me they never asked me thank god to be a part of one of those mm-hmm. interventions um but I never understood the situation that way. I I think in part be, you never I I just I always viewed it as two people. Like I never I never viewed it as my sister is lying to me or mm. my sister is asking me for money. It was always like this 
it was a, it was like an alter ego of you. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't, I never, I never thought those things that they thought. I never, mm-hmm. I don't remember experiencing like, well, my sister doesn't love me or my sister can't. I knew mm-hmm. that you in that state could not protect me mm-hmm. and couldn't be trusted, mm-hmm. but I didn't experience that as you. Interesting. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations in multiple systems, the more margin you have and the more of your hard-earned money you get to keep. But with higher expenses than ever on things like materials and distribution, everything just costs more. That's why smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. You'll reduce IT costs, you'll cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems, and you'll improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, and expenses don't slow down, so why should you? By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash hard things. Netsuite.com slash hard things. That's netsuite.com slash hard things. So when people say to you, I mean, we we got this miracle of sobriety, mm-hmm. right? Which so many people desperately want and are so wishing that there was some advice or formula or reason that some people end up getting the miracle of sobriety and some people don't. And so I know that people often say to you, how did you do it? Yeah. How do I, how do I help? My sister is an addict. My person is an addict. My, per- you know, you got your miracle. What did you do? Like, how yeah. do I help my person? What, how do you answer that? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that because it's, I see that a lot when, when people are responding to you and they feel like they're doing something wrong. And I just, I, I just want to say very clearly, if you are listening to this right now and you want to know what I did to help Glennon into recovery, I just want to make very, very clear that I did nothing. And that no one has ever loved or prayed or suffered or strategized anyone into recovery, not in all the history of the world. Mm -hmm. And I think what I did with you, Glennon, is I just loved you and I lived my life with some really healthy boundaries Mm -hmm. so that when you were ready for recovery, our relationship wasn't irretrievably scarred. Mm. We were... Had I not had those boundaries, the pain from the drinking days might have made it so that it was too scarred to recover. But all I did was just have those boundaries and love you and then answer the phone when you decided that you were going to get sober. And I do view your sobriety as a miracle. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think that there, I cannot see any ascertainable answer as to why some people recover and some stay drunk and why I get to do life 
with you, my best friend, and why other people lost theirs. Like I just, mm-hmm. there's no reason. And so I just feel like, I feel like people are in this awful place where they f- feel like they can, they can work harder to get their person into recovery, but no one has ever earned or deserved a recovering loved one. Mm-hmm. And by trying harder. No. It's just. Or loving more. No. Nope. Mm-hmm. It's just a miracle. So or being and, smarter or any of those things. It's just. And you might never get the miracle. Like you right. can't just wear yourself endlessly down just trying to earn it because you might not. And if you do, then there might be some something left of you to be able mm-hmm. to love that person when they come back. If you don't I just try that. to wear yourself down. I think so many people think I can't make boundaries because I love this person so much. And Mm -hmm. another way to look at it is I have to make boundaries because I love this person so much. Mm -hmm. And I have to make sure that there's something left if there is a miracle of that love because addiction has a way of just ravaging love without boundaries. Yeah. So we did have that day. We did have that day where I called you from the bathroom and PS, like we'd had a few of those days, I think. So we weren't sure that this was going to (laughs) stick, right? Like we, nobody knew if this was going to be the actual time. Do you remember? I remember two things. I have flashes of that day. I have Mm -hmm. like a quick flash of getting into your car. Mm -hmm. I have, I remember walking into the meeting. Mm -hmm. I remember, um, there being brochures on the Mm -hmm. table. I remember Mm -hmm. taking the brochures to the little circle, right? Mm -hmm. And everybody sitting there reading the brochures. So this is probably why they give the brochures. So you have somewhere to look. Awkward as hell. Yeah. Awkward (laughs) AF. Yes. So I remember the the brochures saying things like, you might be an alcoholic if. I know. It was like a magazine quiz. It was like, sweet, we can just do this. This is good. I love a quiz. I love a quiz. So it was like, you know, you drink more than three drinks in one setting or you ever black out or you have shame where you blah, blah, blah. You drink in the morning. And first of all, I remember other people watching other people take the quiz and being like, this is so wild. Like, isn't the fact that we're all sitting in a freaking church basement in the middle of the day in this gross room, like enough of an indicator that we have a drinking right. problem? Like, right. do we really need this the quiz? The jig is up. The I don't think is anyone up. is here yeah. who is not an alcoholic. Yeah. Like, is anyone in the circle going to be like, actually, I just had some extra time to kill and came in here. I'm fine. Okay. I just took the quiz and I'm totally great. I'm going to go back to work. Right. So I remember that. And then I remember checking yes to every single one of them. Mm-hmm. And I remember you putting your hand on my leg and saying, actually, I don't know if AA is going to be enough for you. We might need AAA. Oh my God. Anything to try such, to make. Of course. Because that's how our family, like any humor we can bring in. But but I do remember that was the first laugh. Mm-hmm. And that when that's when I felt like, oh, okay. Like, maybe we're going to be okay. Like the, the laughter is, is, has always been kind of a proof of hope for us. It's mm-hmm. also just a coping mechanism. But what, do you remember anything from that day or do you remember anything different than I remember? I just, that's, I remember those things too. I remember, um, I remember sitting there and thinking like, trying to figure out if I, how I could just do it for you. I was like, mm. can I just oh. say that I'm... I just they're thinking there's no way to walk her all the way through this and that being 
awful. And then I remember just going home and I do remember like for six hours, we just cleaned <gasps> your room. Do you remember that? Oh my God. I and forgot that, about that. That was to me such, cause as we all know, my love language is just any ability to help. And it had been like 10 years at that point of not being able to help in any way. And it mm -hmm. just felt like this, we took every single disgusting thing out of that room and we mm -hmm. cleaned and we organized and we threw everything away. And it was just this kind of hope yes. that you didn't have to live in a place that wasn't worthy of you anymore. It I just, remember feeling like, I remember you leaving that day and sitting in my room and feeling like I deserve this place. I deserve mm -hmm. to live in a nice place. I remember picking up just like all those old gross bottles and ashtrays and just like the layers of shame and crap and disorder. And just one at a time, you just loving. We didn't even talk, I don't think. Mm -mm. I don't mm -hmm. think we talked. We just like minute by minute put stuff away, washed it, cleaned yeah. surfaces. Yeah. But that, that was, was the only meeting I, uh, after that, you you went to the meetings by yourself. And I just wonder what was that, what was that whole process like for you? Recovery meetings and that whole, all the steps and all of it. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel nervous talking about this because I've never really talked openly about my whole experience with um, recovery and specifically AA. It was very unbelievably life-saving for me in the beginning. Um, you know, I'm old school in my belief that I actually am an addict, that an addict is a thing that people can be. I know there's a lot of thought and talk now, which I respect that that is not real. Um, but I feel it in me. Like, I just, I don't know how, how else to describe it other than like, there is a part of me that switches on and off when it comes to certain things that I cannot control. Um, so, so I believe in that. I believe that I actually am an addict and there are things that I need to do to keep that at bay. Um, I loved the, the truthfulness, you know, you know, that the first time I sat and listened to somebody in an AA meeting, I thought, oh my God, like this, these are the people I've been waiting for my entire life. These are the honest people. Mm -hmm. Everyone else is always acting and pretending and lying. And this is where people come to be honest. Mm-hmm that um, part of it was life-saving to me. The accountability, just replace a replacement thing. Like right. when, you're, when you're an addict, you just, all you can think about is drinking. And so just to have something else to think about and to like mm -hmm. plan to do and pe people who will notice if you don't show up and who, you know, just the, the showing up part, um, super, super important to me. I will tell you that, I have never spoken about this publicly, but before, but I didn't do all the steps. Mm. So I was working the steps and then I got to the amends, the making amends step mm. and had a really interesting to me, I don't know if it'll be interesting to anyone else, an interesting experience with that step where I was unable to do it. And I will try to explain why I think the best way. So 
we're just going to have to put 7 million trigger warnings on this episode, but I don't know if you remember before I got sober, um, I had an experience where I had an abortion. I told mom and dad about it. And Mm -hmm. this was in the, in the depths of like just the addiction and all, they just didn't know what to do with me. And one night out of desperation, after I told them about the abortion, they actually sent me to this like priest. Do you mm-hmm. remember this experience? Yep. So there was some little church <clears throat> and I think some a priest that dad had been going to for some spiritual guidance about my addiction and just being my dad and um, <laughs> how to handle being my dad on this earth. And so in a, in a, in a moment of, we don't know what to do with this girl anymore. They, they said, just go meet with this priest. I was like, oh my God. Okay. That should do it. And I, I'll never forget. I was actually like hung over from the night before I was wearing a freaking black leather pants, stilettos, this, like my mascara down to my cheeks, just like, just whoa. And I had to walk into this small church and meet with this priest that I had never met before. And I remember sitting down on the other side of the table and I guess dad had talked to him and this priest just like kind of launched into this speech to me about abortion and about what a sin it was and that perhaps I could be forgiven, but I needed to atone and I needed to, the first thing I needed to do was start apologizing. I needed to apologize like right then and there. Mm -hmm. And there was a part of me that just right now, you know, all these years later, I would have had a much more formed argument to make to this mm-hmm. priest. Right? You've had a few I, years to think about yeah, it. I would yeah. have had a lot of things to say in that mm-hmm. moment. Some of them would have revolved around like hypocrisy and patriarchy and whatever. But at the moment, all I could think was F you. Mm-hmm. Just F you. And, and that encompassed a lot of things, the idea of all of the, you know, sexual hypocrisy that the church represented to me at the time, all of the fact that, you know, nobody had even mentioned where was the, the, the man in this situation. Like nobody was just so, so much of what I understood about shame and sex and birth control and all of these things had come directly from me, from the church. Mm -hmm. And I just kept like thinking, I know that I'm effed up. But like you too. Yeah. Right? Yes. Like you too, you know? So like I'm sorry, but also F you. Right? I'll start so, apologizing if you start apologizing. Exactly. With me. Like yeah. if we're gonna apologize, let's both do it. Uh-huh. Okay. So, but I didn't say any of that. You know what I said? Hmm. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. And then I left and then whatever. When I try to think about apologizing for my addictions. Mm -hmm. Okay. Which is what making amends is right. Right. For all the people you hurt during the. Right. You go back from where your addiction started and then you think of every single person or institution or whatever that you hurt throughout your addiction. Okay. All I could, I wanted to do it. I wanted to do all the things they told me to do. I wanted to get healthy. I wanted to surrender. I wanted to whatever, but I kept thinking about, so to whom do I apologize? Where do I start when I was 10? Right. To to whom does my 10-year-old self mm-hmm. freaking apologize? Or right? who owes my 10-year-old self an 
an apology for the fact that exactly. bulimia was that's that's what that's what I'm I, I feel like the the metaphor that I would use to try to describe how I feel about this is I feel like I was raised, okay, in a country in which on every single corner there's a factory that gives off toxic smoke. Okay? Some people are okay with this okay-ish with the smoke, but there are certain, you know, group in the po- the population that has a gene that reacts negatively to this toxic, toxic smoke that's in the air. And those people get sick, okay? Mm-hmm. And over time, the smoke makes them so sick that they start um, showing symptoms. They start having symptoms. And because of those symptoms, they become a huge pain in the ass too their family, to their friends, to the community. They become a burden because of these Mm -hmm. symptoms. So eventually the symptoms get bad enough that the people go to the hospital and they're like, oh, I'm so sick and I'm a burden to my thing. And And the doctors are like, well, you better start freaking apologizing. Mm -hmm. You better start freaking apologizing because that's the only way you're going to get healthy. Get on your knees and ask for forgiveness for -hmm. getting sick, right? Mm -hmm. I have a humility in my recovery that understands that I am an addict and I am powerless against alcohol. Like I, I believe that. But it also has an F you, my recovery, that's like, hold on a second. Like I was born in a culture where Every single message I heard from the time I was a baby was that a girl's worth is in her beauty and, and the, girl, a be- the girl's beauty is in her smallness. That girls aren't allowed to have big de- appetites, desire. All, that, that a girl's job is to stay small, right? And that was plastered on every billboard and every TV and in my home. And by the way, alcohol culture was pumped into, my, into, my, into our family, Mm-hmm. Eating stuff was pumped into our family. The messages that I got were everywhere, mm-hmm. right? The smoke was everywhere and I was just freaking breathing. Mm-hmm. So perhaps if there had been before the I'm sorry phase, if there was an FU step, right? Where I got right. to like actually line up I'll, because I think that it's two parts, right? Like there is the responsibility I have as an addict to do things differently and to create a different life and to stop hurting people. But there's also the toxins, the smoke that was pumped into the air all the time, right? So my, my surrender, my, my sobriety path is like, it's not just on my knees. It's yeah. like fist in the air a lot right. of time. Like there is an F you to my recovery that is healthier for me than just being that girl who sat and looked at the priest and was like, I'm sorry. Right. And it's also another reason why people who love addicts need to need boundaries because yeah. addict, a lot of addicts got to addiction quite honestly and, and are just as miserable as they can possibly be and they will hurt you. Mm-hmm. And yep. your job is not to save them. Your job is to protect yourself from their inevitable hurt that has nothing to do with their love for you. Yeah. 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 All right. So, you know, 
people will have a lot of feelings also about that AA stuff. And I will say that I found and find so much help and beauty there. Um, And also for me, whenever anything gets too rigid or dogmatic or fundamentalist or tribalist, I can't do it. And so I, I have a major love and respect and no uh, uh, allegiance to the dogma or the um, rigidity of, uh, of, of that path. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I, uh, um, so I think what we should do, sis, is we should, um, I think we should take a break Mm -hmm. and get back to some, uh, Q and A. And I think we're just going to have to do a lot more on sobriety because I love talking with you about this and I love you so much. And, you know, thanks for making the boundaries that you needed. So we had something beautiful to come back to. I love you, sister. Thanks for being the miracle of recovery. Mm -hmm. So I had someone to come back to. God, I'm so glad I finally got to talk about that priest. (laughs) Fuck you. The weather's getting warmer, which is wonderful because we can say bye-bye to big bulky sweaters and jackets and hello to shorts and tees. I just ordered three of Quince's muscle tanks. Check out their European linen shirt dress. I got it in the blue and white stripes. Classic. It's beautiful and summery and gorgeous and linen, and it was less than $50. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, and Quince cuts out the costs of the middleman and passes the savings to us but they only work with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. You will love all of it. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash hard things for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e.com slash hard things to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince dot com slash hard things. Okay, we are back with one of my favorite parts of We Can Do Hard Things. Thank you so much for all of your questions and the topic ideas that you're leaving. Here's the place to call if you have a question for sister and I to respond to, or if you have a topic idea for We Can Do Hard Things. The number is 747 200 5307. So check in with us. We love to hear from you. We listen to every single voicemail. Okay, here's our first question. This question's from Laura. Hi, Glennon. My name's Laura. Um, I'm just listening to your first podcast and journaling this morning and just thinking about hard things in my life right now. And one thing is alcohol and how much I've been using it the past year during the pandemic. And I'm confused on my relationship with it. If I want to keep drinking, if I want to just stop altogether, I go on like these different wavelengths of like all in or all out, you know, and um, I just am confused on my relationship with alcohol how to move forward with it and 
any advice I would appreciate. Thank you. I would love to take this one because I yes. feel, I I understand this confusion very deeply because I feel like the world has kind of presented to us two options of the type of drinker there is. So that either there's like this fall down drunk who loses their job and alienates their family and has this quite conspicuous rock bottom at some point. It's me. It's me. <laughs> Does it sound familiar? And and kind of is forced to stop drinking or or should. You know, mm-hmm. everyone agrees they should. And then there's everybody else. Mm. And it's just kind of assumed that that if you're not in the former category that you sh- that you're in the drinker category. Yeah, and, that your and, default is you should keep drinking. Right, exactly. <laughs> and and I feel like our cultural culture does not make room for people who are not in that super seriously dramatically problematic drinking space to question even question in any way whether their drinking is working for them. Mm. And I feel like it's kind of this very countercultural concept if your life is quote unquote working to even look at it mm. um, and it makes everyone uncomfortable when you do. So my path is very much like this. So I, I, I got drunk for the first time when I was in seventh grade and I've, oh, but I've always been on that tightrope of very high achiever and also drinker. Like that was Mm -hmm. kind of a badge of honor. Like a a big part of my identity was that work hard, play hard thing. And um, then, and that always appeared to be working for me. And then a couple of, a few years ago now, my, it started to work less well for me. And I feel like from the outside, things appear to be still working correctly, but um, my anxiety was through the roof. I was more depressed than I had been before. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't a night that went by that I didn't drink wine. Um, mm-hmm. And it would always be you know, a glass when I was making dinner, a glass during dinner, a glass after dinner. And you know, the glasses I'm talking about. That's not Yes. I know your glasses. (laughs) I sure do. And that was just my routine. And I told myself it was perfectly normal for a couple to finish a bottle of wine every night. And I also very skillfully avoided the fact that my husband was drinking a glass of that yeah. bottle of wine. A couple, a couple to finish. Everybody, yes. that we're just finished. I mean, if everybody does that, we're so European. Um, and I was working really hard during that time and my life was crazy and two little kids and I just needed that click of relief. It's like mm-hmm. the only exhale, the only unwind that I could find in my life to take me out of the constant mental ticker that is going through my head constantly. And I just didn't have any other way that I knew of to do that. And then I gradually started to realize that this thing that I was using to make my life work wasn't working for me. And it was, Mm. it was like, it had been my door into some kind of freedom from the rest of my life, but it was actually the thing making me most unfree. Mm. And 
And the way I realized that, and I was very, I did not want to realize it, um, but I s- just started thinking about it a lot. Mm. I was, I was, instead of worrying about all my problems, I was starting to worry of whether I had a drinking problem. Yes. And, and I also, but then, but I didn't want to ever say it out loud because I, I seriously was wondering how can I keep up my life without this? Oh yeah. Yeah. When you rely on drinking, it seems utterly impossible to consider. Because you're in this spiral of anxiety and depression and you think that if you take away this one thing that is the antidote to that, Mm -hmm. that your life is going to be all those things except worse. Except for (laughs) no relief. It's like that Homer Simpson quote. It's like alcohol, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. Well, it's, (laughs) by the way, that is factually true. I mean, not to go down a tangent, but it is... Science is clear that sustained alcohol consumption, I th- I believe the scientific term is totally jacks up, but yes. something like that, <laughs> totally jacks up your dopamine signaling in mm-hmm. your brain and the, the GABA receptors in your brain. So it literally puts you on this spiral of anxiety and depression mm-hmm. and dependence on that to get out of it, but then leads you further down the cycle. Yeah. So- you need it more and you think you can lose it less yes. <laughs> because of that vicious cycle. Um, and I think for me, it just, I was scared to say it out loud, very scared to say it out loud because it's kind of like that meme that you, I've seen it a few times That's it says, um, I would be friends with you again, but I already told my mom what you did. Exactly. For me, it's sister. I yes. can't be friends with you because I told my sister what you did. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just, there's no, <laughs> it's done. You can't it's, undo that. You know, it's no. out there. And, um, and so I was afraid to say it because I thought for sure that a couple weeks after I got the bravery to say it, I would wa- very much want to say, psych, I take mm-hmm. all of that back. Um, but I think that I think it just it, it got I forgot to feel trapped and mm-hmm. I felt like um, I really truly knew it when you said mm-hmm. about I remember thinking in the car driving one day and uh, that part of Untamed where you say you know what is your dragon what is your one thing that mm-hmm. you know at the center of you. And I knew it was that. I knew it was that I was saying that I had all of these issues so that I needed to drink when in fact my anxiety and worry about whether I would ever be able to stop drinking was in fact my biggest issue. Issue. And a reason that you could never handle your, or or fix your issues because you're constantly tapping out before you get to that discomfort that forces you to actually deal with the issues. So not only does alcohol become an issue, but all your other issues get bigger because all you're doing is avoiding them with the alcohol. And by the way, the other part of that, that's exactly right. But the other part of that is whatever your thing is, I mean, whether it was my bulimia when it was my bulimia, whether it was my drinking when I was my was my drinking. It is this 
decoy issue. So, mm-hmm. so you're both not dealing with your real problems, but you're also telling yourself that these other problems aren't problems because your main problem is your drinking. Your main problem oh, yeah. is your bulimia. And so you're, it, it, it displaces all of the work you should be doing because mm-hmm. you're telling yourself, if I didn't have this one problem, uh, all these other problems will go away, which is also unfortunately not true. <laughs> Right. It's not true, tragically. And, you know, another thing that you keep bringing up is that you just kept thinking about it. Mm -hmm. So whenever someone asks me, um, how do I know if I have a drinking problem? My first thought is always people who don't have drinking problems do not sit around all day and wonder if they have drinking problems. Mm -hmm. Right. If you are wondering if you have a drinking problem, that might be enough evidence for you. Right. And I think, but I think it's fair to understand why people are confused Confused about about what drinking problem means. Because um, we, I mean, every movie, every book, there is a caricature of a person with a drinking problem and they Mm -hmm. are arrested and their parents don't speak to them and they Mm -hmm. lose custody of their kids. And they, Mm -hmm. I mean, all of, so, so it's kind of the, you don't know if you have a right to say it and you also feel yes. right. And there's no place for people like that. I mean, there's and no- it's double worse because the, the, the same media and, and culture that, that holds up, Oh, it's just this fall down drunk that has the problem also continuously holds up drinking as the best life. Mm-hmm. Every celebration, every, you know, g- social gathering that is meaningful, everything that is celebratory when what we see in the media, it involves alcohol. Your mm-hmm. best life will involve alcohol when actually alcohol often keeps people from their best life. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's one of the ways you just know, like, is this thing that I think is going to give me this best life? Is it keeping me from whatever I believe that my best life is? Right. That's right. And that is how I started to feel. The thing that I was that I was relying on to untrap me from the frenetic pace of my life and my head began to feel like my trap. Um and so I mean, my gosh, people do it people do elimination diets with gluten or dairy or whatever the hell else yeah. that is yeah. giving them hives. But the idea of experimenting with whether if you eliminated that from your life, if your life would be better, is this kind of revolutionary thought that, Mm -hmm. and the reason it is, by the way, is because it shakes up the whole ecosystem around you because every time you stop drinking, people view that as a judgment of theirs. And as long as you keep drinking, then we all agree that it's totally normal. All day mm-hmm. long. Um, so anyway, for me, I think to the the person who's asking this question, it just feels like if you if you are thinking about it, you know, and your first steps can be. I mean, for me, my first step was I started one day, kind of reached this crescendo in my head where I was like, I have to clear this mental space of my head. It's taking up too mm-hmm. much real estate in my brain. And I called my doctor's office to ask for 
an appointment and they she didn't have one for like months. Mm-hmm. And I realized that then like that moment, you know, you get all your you're all psyched up to <laughs> yes. do something. And I'm like, that moment has passed. I I'll need probably, some wine. <laughs> I'll probably revisit this in three years. So, but the very- That's the universe. That's the universe <laughs> That's saying the universe I should probably just keep me. drinking. Exactly. <laughs> Order another case of wine. So I, the very next day, I got a call from the same doctor's office reminding of me of my annual physical that was the following day. Oh shit. That was the universe again. Exactly. Saying that you should stop drinking. So I thought, you know, like the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over and expecting different results. I was like, what the hell? What if I just go in there and just tell Tell her the the God's honest truth for the first time in my life? Oh my God. That is a revolution in itself. It is. It is. So I just went in there and I told, I was so scared. I was shaking. I, when she asked all the questions that she asked every year prior to that, well, where you had alcohol <laughs> consumption, I'm like, mm, ish, just about right-ish. Um, I, I told her exactly what I was drinking. And I told her that I was anxious and depressed. And I told her I was worried about it. And she was great. And she looked at me and said, okay, here's what we need to do. Yes, that is, she was definitively, I was expecting her to be like, well, you know, but she was like, "Uh uh-huh, that's too much. And she said, here's what we need to do. You need to not drink for two weeks and then come back and we'll make another appointment and talk about how it's going. And I just burst out crying because the way she said, you just need to not drink for two weeks like it was easy. Like I could just, oh, that hadn't occurred to me before. So so what I need to do is not drink. <laughs> right. So so I wasn't expecting that crap. So I came in here to say I needed to quit drinking. And you're telling me that the only way I can quit drinking is to quit drinking? That's unacceptable. But it's just, it, uh, yes, it was too yes. much. <laughs> it was too much. And so I said, I... I knew if I left with nothing, even if it was like a placebo effect, something, something to make me feel <laughs> like this was possible. Advil PM. Yes, something exactly. Else. Um, she, I t- just said that to her, which was brave of me because yes. I usually am like, got it, got it. And I was like, definitely don't got it. And she said, so she gave me this prescription for something that was didn't do anything for the cravings, but it was supposed to help with withdrawal. So if you go from four glasses of wine every night for three years to zero, your body has a reaction to that. So Yes, I do remember. <laughs> I do remember. <laughs> and so she gave it to me to take for two weeks and then come back. And it was, I remember I was very um it was an emotional day, but I remember picking up that prescription from the pharmacy. And I just burst out laughing as soon as I looked at it because on the outside of the bottle, it said, call the doctor if you experience mood changes. <laughs> I was like, should I do that now? Yes. Yeah. I'm pretty much already having them. So, um, but that was 17 months ago mm-hmm. that that um, all happened. And all of my problems are still my problems. But now I know what my problems are. Mm-hmm. And before I didn't. And eliminating the drinking 
has not fixed my problems, but it also is not part of the source of my problems. And it's also not, um, it's not tricking me into believing that the drinking is my problem. Like I can actually Mm, see, kind of clears the runway to actually look at what is. And I do still feel shitty a lot of the time, but I definitely feel free. And that's Mm. what I want. And so I think that just, I think it would do each person a great service. And whether it's in, whether it's about drinking or whether it's about relationships or whether Mm -hmm. it's about your partnership or something with your kid, if we were just brave and bold enough to not need this kind of permission slip of a dramatic rock bottom to Mm -hmm. look at things, Yes, to look at things. I think yeah. that would really be a blessing for all of us because mm-hmm. we, it's like we need to wait until we're no longer having sex for six months to be like, well, it's officially a problem. Or we need to right. wait until our kids are, you know, until the teacher's telling us that something's very wrong. Or we need, mm-hmm. I, and same with drinking. We, we feel like yeah. we need an excuse to open that conversation because it disturbs some kind of part of the ecosystem. Yeah. I mean, it challenges a cultural mandate we have that alcohol is a part of a good life. Right. I mean, it, it challenges a, an idea that, that alcohol has and – and, you know, that's all stuff that's pumped in the air purposefully – by the alcohol industry, right? <laughs> like right. this is not a mystery why we all think this. And the funny thing is, if you if you're wondering if you have a drinking problem, and the idea of even experimenting with removing it for a small bit of time, it, it makes you feel terrified and like you cannot do that. That's more information for you, mm-hmm. right? If the mm-hmm. idea of even removing it, um, if you can't do it, that's might be your evidence that you must do it. Mm-hmm. Tragically, I have learned many times in my life. So what does living sober mean to you? I think it's funny because I feel like people think of sobriety as living your entire life in deprivation. It's like we have we have defined sober as not drinking. So it's necessarily this idea of you are withholding something from yourself that everyone else gets the gets to enjoy. But I think I think it's the opposite actually. I think to me sobriety is a commitment to stop living out of a place of deprivation and to start living in the opposite place which is possession. Like possession of yourself and your needs and accountability to the life you're making. Mm-hmm. Because this is what I mean by that. I think that when whether you're abusing drugs or alcohol or food or sex or whatever it is, it's the thing we need or want the most. We think that's the thing. And that to withhold that from ourselves is deprivation. So if I'm not allowing myself to have the thing I want the most, it is a deprivation. But with the thing we're abusing is always just a shitty consolation prize to a higher need. Mm. Mm-hmm. And by- give, up, give me an example. Okay. So, so, you know, like you, I was bulimic for a lot of years 
And when I go back and look at the time periods where that raged the most, it was always during a time that was not safe or sensical around me, where Mm -hmm. it was, um, Mm -hmm. whether it was law school and my utter overwhelmed with that and my um, relationship at the time that none of it, it was all overwhelming and none of it made sense. I, I created this secret, terrible life of binging and purging all the time. And it was torturous, but it was a drama entirely of my own making. Yes. I understood. You were in control. Yes. Yes. You were in control of your own drama, your own pain, your own misery. (laughs) So I was concurrently utterly out of control Mm -hmm. and 100% in control. Mm -hmm. And being in control in, like, through the reward of compulsive bulimia was a very, very shitty consolation prize to a higher need that was setting the boundaries that I needed in the real world telling people what I needed from them, saying no to things, and making my actual life manageable. Yeah. Well, I mean, this reminds me of in Untamed. It's like the idea of when you ask a woman, why do you need that bottle of wine a night? Like, what do you need from this? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they will tell you, I just need a break. I yep. just need some a moment of peace. Yep. I just need and and in big alcohol and in in a capitalist society at all, in any way, their job is to to take a real human need that's real and true and good and slap a product on it, mm-hmm. and that is what they've done with wine and booze and all the things they've slapped the human need of celebration, joy, rest on bottles. And so if we can't get it the real way, we just grab a bottle because we think that that's what we're going to get. And so it's like this surface desire of the bottle of wine, it, it, it can't really be trusted, but the, but the, but the desire below it for me, I'm saying below you say, hi, that's interesting. <laughs> but like you go high, I go low regularly in our life. But the, this, the, the, the deeper desire beneath that surface desire for a bottle of wine is good and can be trusted. It's just the freaking human desire for a woman has for just some rest, some peace, the ability to check out of her mind for a minute. But you only know that because you went through that. Yes. Because here's because here's the most insidious part of this whole thing, which is it becomes this vicious cycle that you never actually identify your higher need or what you call your deepest deeper need. L- yeah. Deeper need. Because you become so convinced by your shame that your life only sucks because of your addiction. Mm-hmm. And not because of some met higher need that is not being met. So you mm-hmm. never get to the part where you can say, what I really want, what I really need and want is X. Because mm-hmm. you are 100% convinced that it is your fault. If if I didn't drink and make my life miserable, if I didn't spend three hours a day binging and purging. If I didn't, that is the source of my problems. Mm -hmm. But I need this thing in order to manage my life. So you can't even see the upside. You can only see the deprivation of the immediate need. Yeah. Can you, and you're considering it a reward. Like Mm -hmm. you're telling yourself that's a reward I'm keeping myself from instead of understanding that it's often just a punishment. It's a self-punishment. It is. And 
it for me it's the shitty consolation prize it's like yeah. here's this little you know it's the store bought steak of the cheetah yeah instead yeah, yeah, yeah. of the you know, wild hunt. And I think that, I just think it's super countercultural and audacious and brave to say, this isn't working for me and I require something else, whether yeah. it's in any context. And for me, sobriety is saying, you can keep your shitty consolation prize. I'm going to demand the real thing. Mm-hmm. And that, mm-hmm. that's just, what at the end of the day, what I want, I want the real thing. I want to know what the real thing is. And if I keep, if I keep accepting this consolation prize, like my treat and reward in life, I'm never going to know what the real thing is. Yes. And by the way, that is what I believe. One of the reasons why our culture continues to present wine as the opiate of women masses, right? Like you stay you don't need to get the real thing. You don't need freedom. You don't need peace. You don't need equality. You don't need justice. Just keep drinking. Oh, I right? got a, I got a like package in the mail the other day that was a set of wine glasses that said self care on them. Yeah, yeah. Like that's. I mean, if 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 friends with you a glass of wine, if you don't have a problem, if you're not keeping yourself from your higher, great. But. That isn't self-care, even in those situations. That's fun. Right. That's enjoyment. That's time with your friends. That's positive. Like the actual wine is <laughs> not the self-care. And mm. if if that is the only self-care you're giving yourselves, you are accepting a shitty consolation prize to what actually is self-care. Yeah. We have a question here from Ashley. Ashley says to us, I think I would like to reduce my drinking or stop drinking, but my husband drinks just as much as I do and doesn't want to stop and he doesn't think I have a problem. I can tell he wouldn't really support me if I tried to stop. And it would already be hard enough with his support. So what do you do if you want to get sober, but you feel like your spouse doesn't really want you to? I mean, yeah, this is just... I think the most predictable and probably common mm-hmm. fear that people have, you know, despite the fact, I'm sorry, besides the first one, which is I can't live without booze. The second one is always like, but all of my relationships will change, mm-hmm. right? Or the people around me won't understand and the people around me won't want me to get sober. And the truth is that that often the people around you will not want you to get sober. Yes, When you live in a culture that says drinking is the thing, and so everyone becomes dependent on it in one way or another, and you start to say, what if it's not? And and then you stop drinking. Everyone around you considers your stopping drinking as a condemnation of their drinking, Mm -hmm. right? It's like that, that crab analogy, the crab, the bucket of crabs where like there's a bucket full of crabs and then one escapes and the other, the other, the the rest of the trapped crabs natural inclination is to grab that crab and pull it back Mm -hmm. in the bucket. Mm -hmm. Right. So I do, you know, not drinking in the beginning changed my relationships dramatically because everybody who I was friends with was big drinkers. There was no way for me to survive my life without being surrounded by other people whose drinking was as problematic as mine. So I actually lost a lot of relationships. 
Um, but over time I have learned and seen that it just affects things, right? You just have to be ready for things to get weird all of the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, Abby and I don't get invited to a lot of things. We talk about it a lot. Like, and I think it's because people don't know what to do with two sober people and at an evening gathering that is revolved around alcohol. And we've just learned to accept it as a part, as a price of sobriety, I guess. It's okay with us because the other way is harder, you know, causing a little bit of awkwardness in relationships is okay with us. But what about you? What would you say to sweet Ashley about her husband? I would say to listen to the boundaries episode that we did a couple weeks ago, because (laughs) it's exactly that. I mean, it isn't, it, um, it doesn't mean that you've done something wrong or there's a problem if you if there is a shift in the ecosystem around you or in your relationships or in your family unit when you decide to stop drinking and in fact you should be prepared for it anyone who is it, it will happen it is a result of setting a boundary for yourself that says i want something different and any time in your life you say i want something different there are ripple effects throughout it because how audacious of you to want something different that you think is better and why do you think that you are better than me. You know, mm-hmm. it is, it, it it's inevitable. I will say that you, um, I will say to your, to your point, sister, about um, the parties and the fun, I was very worried about that. And also it doesn't matter. You're, doesn't matter. I have more fun at places now because I'm not sick, because I'm not rethinking the 47 things I said that I'm not like, it's, it's liberating, mm-hmm. but I do want to say to Ashley, that is super hard. And I had a very supportive husband also, and I have my sister and all of that, but my, my husband still drinks in our house. It's just, you can't, I just want to say very clearly that just as it's true that you can't stay so get or stay sober because someone else wants you to. You also can't be prevented from getting and staying sober because someone else doesn't want you to. Yes. Yes. It is. And you can't use someone else as an excuse not to. Because by the way, there's a billion excuses not to. If you're just Mm -hmm. like looking around your house to find them, good luck because there's a, (laughs) there's going to be a thousand. So it's, I feel like for the hardest thing to swallow when it comes to your sobriety is that no one owes you a goddamn thing. That's right. Not your partner. about you. Mm -hmm. Not your, there's no like, they failed to do X so I can't get sober. No. No one owes you a goddamn thing. It is Mm -hmm. a hundred, for me, that was, it was very, liberating slash lonely, but at the end of the day, empowering to know that it's a hundred percent. Sobriety is a hundred percent about your relationship with and accountability to yourself. That's it. That's it. And that if you let anybody else into your sobriety relationship, that isn't you, that you're sabotaging yourself. That's right. And I would also add to that. So So you don't, Ashley doesn't use her husband as an excuse to not get sober. And then when she starts to get sober, if she decides to, she does not verbally try to convince her husband to get sober. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is is like the, the, the curse of the, the freshly sober. Like you can always, it's like, who do you want to sit next to least? Like a freshly sober person, someone who just started CrossFit, like all of them 
just are such evangelicals for their newfound it is pyramid path. schemes. It's just a pyramid scheme. So just all you can, well, I, I learned this the hard way a million times. Like you just, you go about doing the true thing for you and you just let everybody around you watch. And you give you, the respect mm-hmm. of what you ask for yourself. Mm-hmm. You, this It is a deeply personal deeply specific question as I don't think no one should drink. I think everyone should make that personal decision for themselves. And I ask you to respect mine and I respect the hell out of yours. All right. We'll leave it at that. Single-handedly impacting our environment for the better, that's a daunting task. But it's possible, and there are incredible people who are living proof that setting your mind to something and really being passionate about it will bring about change. The Goldman Environmental Prize is the world's foremost award honoring grassroots environmental activists. Each year, the prize honors six ordinary people who are making an extraordinary impact for the planet. If you look at this year's winners, you'll learn about Marcel Gomez, who exposed the links between a company's meatpacking practices and illegal deforestation, which led to a major boycott of that company's products. Amazing. You'll learn about Andrea Vidalre, whose relentless leadership resulted in California adopting its most ambitious emissions reduction regulations in history. And there are more amazing stories to discover I can't imagine stories more important than these. Find the stories of this year's prize winners at goldmanprize.org. What do you think these people's next right thing should be? What should the pod squads be talking about this week with sobriety, addiction, all of it? What should the pod squads conversations be about? I think it would be super interesting for someone to think about what is the thing that you need that you depend on, that's your reward, that's your treat, whatever it is, that that's what you use to get through your life. And then spend some time thinking whether that thing is the real deal for you or whether that could possibly be a shitty consolation prize for a higher need that is not being met somewhere. And, you know, here are some examples. The people who are overspending constantly and ruining their life with overspending because what they really want are, are is belonging and worthiness. And they think if they throw these things around their body that that will give them the worthiness that they so deeply are craving. Or, you know, the example I put in the Untamed of my friend who was about to buy a beach house, who was in no financial shape to buy a beach house. And when we sat down and talked about what was this need, she was just desperate to get some time with her family back. Everybody was in a going in a million different directions. And so the deeper desire beneath the beach house was just some freaking time with everybody where they were looking eye to eye and their phones were down and they were. So, you know, the beach house turned into an $8 basket on the table where everybody put their phones and they were able to sit and have family dinner each night. Um, the, the bottle of wine, which the deeper desire beneath is for some rest, for some peace, for some um, non- product, you know, producing time. So anyway, what is uh, what sister calls a shitty consolation prize or what I call the surface desire? What is um, one of those that you have in your life that 
is not the real deal. What's beneath it? What's the good, true human desire beneath it that you might actually be able to gift yourself if you stop accepting the shitty consolation prize? And this week when life gets very hard, instead of grabbing the shitty consolation prize, just tell yourself that we can do hard things. We love you. I give you Tish Melton and Brandy Carlisle. I walked through fire, I came out the other side. I chased desire, I made sure I got what's mine. And I continued to Thank you.
We Can Do Hard Things is produced in partnership with Cadence 13 Studios. Be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Especially be sure to rate and review the podcast if you really liked it. If you didn't, don't worry about it. It's fine.